Happy Advent, everyone. This is that time of the year where we, we look at a specific themes in the Bible, the Old Testament, where they're looking forward to the Messiah, the hope of heaven, the stem that grows from the stump of Jesse. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. Now, this um, I, I was going to do something unusual this year, but my Protestant um, backbone just wouldn't allow me to do it. So in the Eastern Rite, in the Eastern churches, they, they at this time of the year preach out of books in that, that intertestimonial period, books that we do not include in our Bible. And I could, could just cannot bring myself to do that. <laughs> and, and all the Westminster vines said hallelujah. <laughs> so I thought about this, and I thought, you know, you don't need those. Those books are helpful, but those aren't, books aren't for preaching. If you preach out of the New Testament, you can explain those books without having to preach out of them. So I'm going to be talking a lot about stuff that is that you can find in First and Second Maccabees, it's called. Now, the, the Roman Catholic Church includes it in their Bibles. The Eastern Orthodox Church includes it in their Bibles. Um, we do not, for obvious reasons. If you have any questions about that, please come and talk to me. I'll explain it uh, deftly out of the Belgian Confession. <laughs> but what I want to do is I want to talk about that same period of time. Okay? It's important to understand what occurred then in order to understand what is happening when Jesus comes. Today's sermon is called The Fourteen Generations. The fourth generations. And I got the phrase from Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. It says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the, to, to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, did you follow that? All of those periods of time are the, are the same amount of generations. Now, a generation is 40 years. In the Bible, and so that is at least 400 years, right? It's a long time. It's a long time. But can anyone show me the portion of Scripture that covers the 14 generations from the deportation to Christ? No, we don't have one. <laughs> so we don't know usually what happened. And so it's important to actually consider that, that period of time. And that's what we're going to do this Advent. I'm going to do three sermons on the 14 generations and what occurred during that time. But before I begin, let us together pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the prophets and apostles who have given us your word, that uh, the, the blood that was shed to bring it into our own tongue. We thank you, Lord, for your providence, for your sovereignty, uh, to know that you are working in the world even when you do not uh, sit a prophet or apostle down to write about it. We know that you are the sovereign one, you are the ruler of heaven and earth, that all things are in your hands. And I pray, God, that as we open up this mysterious um, 14 generations, this Advent season, that you would delight us and that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, and that you would humble us with just how sovereign you are. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and amen. Now, where this whole idea comes from is the fact that you turn to the New Testament, and what you find there are themes and structures, positions of authority that are never mentioned in the Old Testament. They're mentioned in the New Testament, and if you go back in the Old Testament, say, and you try to find a scribe, you're not going to find one. So, so <laughs> this is what happens. We're supposed to interpret the New Testament using the Old Testament, but then you, you look up the word scribe in the Old Testament, and it's not there. So what gives? What are we supposed to do? Now, I'm going to go through a number of these to highlight just exactly what I mean so no one's confused. There are things in the Gospels, just start with those, and especially the early chapters, where things are mentioned, and, and if you are a diligent student, you're like, well, I wonder what this means. And you go back to the Old Testament, you won't find it. The first one is in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There we read of King Herod of Judea. Now, what is the land of Judea? If you, if you have one of those Bibles that puts those fancy maps in there, and you go back to the maps of the Old Testament era, you know what you won't find? Judea. It doesn't exist there. You'll find Israel. You'll find the 12 tribes. You'll find the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon. But you will not find Judea. So what is that? Secondly, Herod. Who is he? Is he a son of David? Is he sprouting up from the stump of Jesse to deliver Israel? Judea is not mentioned in the books of Joshua or Samuel or Kings. Herod, his lineage, is not recorded anywhere. Now, 
Herod is an Edomite. If you don't, if you are keeping score, you'll know that the Edomites are the cousins of Israel. And if you go to the latter prophets at the end of the Old Testament, God does not like them very much. God is unhappy with the Edomites. The Edomites are a problem. So now you open up the New Testament, you get to Luke chapter 1, you find out, well, an Edomite is the king of some country called Judea. What is that all about? And that's exactly what I mean. At the beginning of the Gospels are these odd details that do not align with territories or leaders of the Old Testament. And what they do is they actually tell us a little bit about what happened in between. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 also mentions King Herod. But additionally, it mentions wise men from the east. The east. Now, at face value, that's a directional designation. East, west, north, south. East is not a country. What is it? When When we say the Middle East, what do we mean by the Middle East? Well, the Middle East to us as Americans is a homogenous group of people with the same language and same culture. Now, if I brought Laura up here to testify, she would tell you that it's not homogenous. Okay, I, this is, I got into trouble with this when I was in Eastern Europe. I said, well, what's Eastern Europe? And the Polish said, anything east of where you're standing. Nobody, wa- nobody wants to be Eastern Europe, right? E- and I said, oh, okay, so if I was standing in Cork in Ireland, I could call all of Europe Eastern Europe. And let me tell you, those Poles thought that was funny. I was like, I struck upon a European joke I don't even totally understand. So I was told repeatedly when I was in Central Europe that it was Central Europe. I said, okay, well, if I went to Germany, what would they call you guys? They said Eastern Europe. I said, okay. So you find this in the Bible. They say wise men came from the east. Well, what is that? It's not a country on a map. It is a cultural designation. It's a cultural designation. The east and the west, much like we have an east and west church now, eastern and western, western civilization, these are two different things. It, it, they're actually, when, when they say the east here, it has more to do, it's very aligned with what we mean when we say the east. And we don't often realize that, I think. Now, these wise men, who are they? That's going to be the last sermon I preach in January in this series. Who are those guys? How, who, why do they care about a Messiah? How do they know about a Messiah? How do they know where to go to find him? How is this local religion become something that philosophers from the East, prophets from the East, are concerned about in any way, shape, or form? Now, further, there are six distinct and different Herods. This has always confused me. I always, even after I had become a Christian, thought the Herod in the Bible was always the same guy. When I was doing the Gospel uh, According to Mark series, I found out, oh my gosh, there's a lot of them. There are a lot of Herods. Why all the Herods? Who are these people? There's six of them. There's Herod Antipas and Herod Philip of Tetrarch and Herod Archelaus. And I suddenly was like, you know what? You know what they did? They wanted to be like the Caesars. So Caesar Augustus, Caesar Nero, Caesar, the original one, was so great and, and so prominent in their, amongst their people that everyone who came to lead the Romans wanted to be called Caesar. Well, there's something similar here. They want to keep the name Herod because the original Herod, believe it or not, was called Herod the Great. <laughs> and if, if you have a leader called Herod the Great, uh, all the leaders would want to be like him. Now, imagine everyone who ran for president called themselves Trump. I'm just kidding. It's a little joke. It's a little joke. <laughs> now, just to mix it up even more, there's this group called the Herodians in Mark 3, in Mark 12, and Matthew 22. Now, these are not just followers of any of the Herods, like I originally thought. This was a rabbit trail, let me tell you, that took me far afield. But specifically, these are followers of Herod Antipas. And he, it turns out, is a strong proponent of what they call Hellenism. Now, I'm not going to explain that word yet. I just want you to keep track. Hellenism. What is that? Now, add to this in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, which records a dispute between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Both Christians, but they're having a fight. They're having a fight over distributing funds to the widows, and this is where we then start with deacons. But who are the Hellenists? And why are they distinct from the Hebrews? You go and you find out, actually, you know what? Those guys are Hebrews as well. They're also Israelites. They're also Jews, but they're Greek Jews. Well, what, is that? what does that mean? If they're ethnically Jewish, how are they Greek? Who are the Hellenists? The mystery continues. You go to Acts chapter 4, and it mentions priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees. It mentions rulers and elders and scribes, along with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all who were of the high priest family. 
Now, hold on a minute. Alexander is not, is not a Hebrew name I've ever heard. If you go to the Old Testament, you will not find a single Alexander in amongst the people of Israel. Why are they naming their sons after Greek, foreign, Hellenist rulers, emperors? What is going on with that? And as I said, you look up Sadducee or scribe in the Old Testament, and you will find nothing, nothing. Now, Hellenism, Hellenism is Greek culture. That's, that's what it is. The culture that came out of Greece is called Hellenism. When Alexander the Great took over the world, or what he thought was the world, what he wanted, he, he fell so in love with the Greeks that he wanted everyone to be Greek. And he started a program to transform the whole world into being Greek. He loved the culture. The wine was that good. The stories were that good. The art was that good. The language was that good. He wanted everyone to be Greeks. And so this became Hellenism. And, and then the Romans... Right, who wanted to establish themselves, the first rulers, thought, you know what, we need to have some lineage because we just made this stuff up while we're standing around here in this field. So what we should do is say that we actually were defeated by the Greeks at the Battle of Troy, and we're actually Trojans, and we hate the Greeks. And this is literally where they said they came from, which is nonsense. But the point is, they then wanted themselves, because there, were, there was this little thing called envy, they took Hellenism up, the Romans, and they also wanted to make everybody Greek. Because Greek, being Greek was cool. Being Greek was old. Being Greek was fancy. Right? This, and you see this kind of stuff in the modern world. Why is it when modern patriots want to get all patriotic on us, they start talking about being the, you know, 1776, they slap it on everything, or they slap American flags on everything, or everybody starts wearing those funny patriot hats. Right? This is what people do. They want to be associated with something old, something firm, something trustworthy, something powerful. And so Hellenism became a movement in, in the ancient Near East and in the Middle East and in Rome and in Europe. And, and what is funny about this is it's much like being Roman now. Right? Hitler calls himself the third, he called it his little project, the Third Reich, which is, is what he considered to be the third kingdom the, and, and, and all of their uniforms and all of their flags and all their stuff looked very Roman. And the Holy Roman Empire, and the Eastern Roman Empire, and the Western, and, and Western civilization did the same thing with Romanism as the Romans and others did with the Greek culture, if this makes any sense. Right? Who doesn't want to live in a Roman villa? Who doesn't like to drink Italian wine? Who doesn't like pasta? <laughs> we fall in love with these cultures. Right? And just, like, Italian food is so popular in Europe, I couldn't believe it. You want to, I mean, and it's not Italian food. I, I mean, American Italian food is not Italian food. But the, the European Italian food is even weirder than American Italian food. But there's just this romance about the whole thing. Okay? And this is what Hellenism was. Everybody wanted to have the language. Everybody wanted to have the culture. Now, the only time the Greeks are mentioned in the entire Old Testament is found in Joel chapter 3, verse 6. Joel chapter 3, verse 6. It's the only reference to the Greeks in the Old Testament. It says, You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them from their own border. Now, I think, actually, prophetically, there's a lot going on in this verse, more than just the fact that some Hebrews were sold to some Greek people. I think the people of Israel were sold to Hellenism, and that was part of their exile and part of their punishment for rejecting God. They were sold to the Greeks in more ways than just physical, physically being sold to them. The Greeks are used to judge Israel, who were sold not just bodily but culturally to the Greeks for centuries. In fact, the, the Hellenistic influence on Israel did not end until the 7th century A.D., when a little religion called Islam <laughs> came along and removed all Greek culture, all the Greek culture that they could, from the area. Now, Judea was a later kingdom of returned exiles under the jurisdiction of various foreign kingdoms. That's what it is. They're like, oh, I, what are you guys called? The Jews? Okay, so we'll call you Judea. And it's literally just like a, a play on words. And, they, and whenever they had Jews and they didn't know what to do with them or the Jews wanted to have their own place, they sent them back to this land and called it Judea. And then several empires kicked Judea around amongst themselves like a football for the next 500 years. And that's where Judea comes from. It's all of these, it, 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 just like now, after World War II, what are we going to do with all these leftover Jews who survived World War II? Well, let's send them back to Judea. <laughs> and so modern Israel, I would prefer to call modern-day Judea. 
because the concept is the same. We don't know what to do with the Jews, and so let's send them to the Middle East and give them their own land and forget about all the people who were living there before. But we're used to that because we took over America from the Native Americans, and so we're used to displacing people. Anyway, see, see what happens when I do this? I just get... Now, the Jewish people in the period of the exile were sold into slavery. They were sold into Hellenism. And what happened is that they went out from the Aegean Sea to southern Arabia and beyond, and they were sold as slaves. And this is actually called the Diaspora, the Diaspora. And one of the threads that we're going to look at during these 14 generations is the fact that Jews were spread all over the known world. They went everywhere. And what do you think they took with them when they went? Well, they took Jewishness, right? They took the Hebrew scriptures, they took the synagogue, they took the prayers, they took their monotheism, and they, and they went and they built synagogues all over the place, everywhere they went. They became very rich, very influential. And this is called the diaspora. It's mentioned in Acts and John and First Peter and James. And it's why, right now think about this, Jesus, his ministry was only a few years but on Pentecost, right, how New Testament does this sound? How, how Christ-like does this sound? Because Christ is supposed to bring all the nations to himself. Well, this project didn't start when Jesus was born. Because we find on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, this is what we read. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. See, I thought that's what the Messiah was supposed to do. Well, this work clearly began before Jesus had showed up. Because... Right? At Pentecost, it wasn't that long after he died. And here you have Jews from every nation under heaven. And it says, At the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astounded, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Now, here's my question. How does a tribal religion collect adherents from every nation on the earth? Can you name another tribal religion that did this? Right? And, and we think that it's something that happened after Pentecost. But it, it's, it already happened. And Jesus comes along and says, my people are gathered, let me lead them. And, and that is something that happened during the 14 generations that we're going to look into in further sermons. Because it's quite remarkable. Right? God didn't wait. He was already moving and shaking and, and, and controlling what happened in the world in order to bring his message to the world. Now, another interesting thematic difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is found in Acts chapter 17. There we find that Paul addresses the men of Athens at Mars Hill. Paul uses a statue of a foreign god and a quote from a pagan poet as an apology for the living God. Now, this method, right? Think about it. Could you imagine the prophets? Could you imagine Elijah going into Mars Hill and being... You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to use these statues to know gods, to make a point about the living God. No, the prophets of the Old Testament, what do they do? They knock these things down. They slaughter their prophets. And, And here's Paul at Mars Hill validating in one sense the fact that they have the statue he says you know you know what you have here is the statue and you know what that reminds me of is the actual god that i really that's really there that doesn't live in temples made by men and you're like wait a minute paul paul joel would roll over in his grave the, the old testament prophets malachi if he were here would not stand for this what are you doing and and one of the points i want to make here is that this leads a lot of christians modern Christians, to make the mistake that the God of the Old Testament has changed. Because if you look at what Paul is doing at Mars Hill, and you look at the beginning of the Gospel of John, where John uses a Greek philosophical term called the Logos, he did not invent that word. If you go into pagan philosophy prior to John, there is a ton written about the Logos, the Arche. And and John validates it. But he doesn't just accept it as it is. He, he filters it through a Trinitarian understanding of reality. And he says, you know what the Logos is? You know what the focal point of all existence is? Is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and 
I cannot describe to you, if you really sat down and you looked at the Old Testament prophets and the way that the apostles argue, how different they are. And the conclusion that some come to is that God has changed. But we know that that is not true. The people have changed. The people have changed. John doesn't validate Greek philosophical concepts any more than Paul validates the idols. He uses them as a means, as a natural law argument, one would say, to prove that there is a Trinitarian God. Now, Hellenism in, the, in these two instances are not, is not something to be wholly accepted, neither wholly rejected. And I think that that is what the apostles come along and do that is so different from everybody else in Israel. They don't just reject it wholeheartedly, and they also don't accept it wholeheartedly. They know who the living God is, and they're going to use any, anything at hand, any, any idea, any concept, any idol. They can prove from anything that there is, in fact, a Trinitarian God. Now, this tectonic shift, and not the message, but the means that the message is delivered, is explained in the 14 generations. How did the, the, the mouthpieces of God go from, I'm telling you, go and read the book of Joel and Malachi, and then you go and you read sermons by Paul where he's going out and he's facing pagans. Right? Could you imagine Jonah going to Nineveh? <laughs> like, oh, look at all these foreign gods you have here. I'm so glad because let me tell you a little something about Yahweh. No, right? He doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want anything to do with it. And when he goes there, we're not even told what he said. Right? Because the point of the, the Jonah sermons is not what he says, but the fact that God moves in people's hearts to bring them to the true faith. But what I want to make the point is just look. Look at how arguments are made so differently. Now, we begin to understand these tectonic shifts in thought and communication between the Old Testament and the New Testament when we turn to Matthew chapter 1 and look at the genealogies of Jesus. As I've already read, Matthew 1.17, we find out that there were 14 generations between Abraham and David. There were 14 generations between David and the exile. And there were 14 generations between the exile and the coming of Christ. Now, this period, the, the 14 generations between the exile and the coming of Christ, is sometimes called the Second Temple Judaism. I don't like that because the Second Temple is Jesus. Right? The temple in between was just a stand-in. So I don't like that phrase I don't like calling it the intertestimonial period as if God had nothing to say or nothing to do in between, like he was just putting his feet up and drinking coffee, right, playing Scrabble with his son before he sent him down the earth. So I like to just call it the 14 generations. That's what this period is. It's the same amount of time. Let me show you. So this here and this here, this is 14 generations. That's how, how much time is. This is what's recorded in 14. Now you go from here to here, and this is also 14 generations. Look at how much that is. Okay, now you go to this part right here between Malachi and Matthew, and there's nothing written. There's nothing. But how much time are we actually talking about? If we don't stop and think about it, we miss something very important. It's 587 years now, does much change in 587 years? If you go back 587 years from right now, it would be the year, what? Anybody who's good at math? 1435. 1435. Now, has much changed since 1435? <laughs> if you go back to 1435, 587 years, the new world had not yet been discovered by modern Europeans. Don't get me started on that. Okay, it had already been discovered. It's not like no one had ever found it before. But modern Europeans didn't find it yet. In fact, in 1435, one could argue rather the Middle Ages was still going on. I would. Okay, because the Reformation hadn't started yet. The Renaissance hadn't started yet. Now, has man and his world changed much since, for, since 1435? If God were to have given inspired messages to the Western world in 1435, what language would he have written them in? How would he have communicated Okay, now you go to 2022, the same amount of time that passed between the Old and New Testaments. Now, what language would he communicate to us in now? And how would he communicate? Okay, it's an interesting thought experiment. We have to understand the tectonic shifts 
That occurred during these 14 generations. The tectonic plate Hellenism and empire of the diaspora and the political and religious movements within Israel to respond to both. Okay, in this amount of time, Alexander the Great, the Persians, the Greeks, the Maccabees, the Roman allies who then became the authoritarian masters, all these foreign nations who passed Judea back and forth as if, as if it was a piece in an epic game of empire. In that amount of time, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. The Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmuds were written. The Midrash was written. And if you've never read the Midrash, I have actually a filtered version of it because I, don't, I just don't have the time. It's so big. But I actually have one put together by some Protestant scholars who take out the Jesus parts and put them together in a nice little book. But the Midrash and the Babylonian Talmud, which is 40 volumes, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. A, a man named um, uh, Philo of Alexandria sat down and wrote a little book that reconciled the Old Testament with Greek philosophy. In that amount of time, do you think much is going to change in the mind of Jews and the culture of the Jewish people? This radically changed them. Now, the Jewish people were scattered throughout the world, founding communities and synagogues everywhere. The Jewish people's compromises, their alterations, their defiance of the cultural shifts, all are there in the background of the New Testament. And we go and we sit down and we read it, and, and, and we simplify all these things. We think, oh, Jews bad, Jesus good. <laughs> right? We, don't ha- we, we have no cultural understanding. Right? And, and behind the whole thing is this Greek culture that if you don't understand it, you don't see it. Like, even this, like, Paul writes in a, re, in, in a rhetorical style that he actually learned from his classical education, not his Jewish education. And so if you don't know anything about rhetoric, and you sit down and you read his letters, it's actually really hard to figure out sometimes what he's doing. And a lot of the mysteries of what he is doing and how he's communicating is corrected if you simply knew something about rhetoric. But we oversimplify the, the problems, the errors, the confusions inside the New Testament. Okay? It's a world very different from Amos and Nehemiah and David and Zechariah. And, and then, right? not in the Old Testament, not in that 14 generations, but at the end of it, Jesus comes. Why? Why then? Why then? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now we read that, and we think, wait, 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 mystery? Why is his will a mystery? According to his own purpose. Fullness of time. What does that mean? Unite all things in him. Well, part of what we think there, too, is, oh, Jesus comes to therefore then go and unite all things. But we see in, in, the, in the text in Pentecost that he already had done a great deal of uniting. The 14 generations between the exile and the coming of Christ are crucial for our understanding of the meaning of the fullness of time. And that's what I'm going to try to explain this morning. We will be looking closely at these 14 generations over the coming weeks, but I want to start with just a brief historical sketch, as, and I'll try to make it as little boring as possible, try to make it as exciting as possible, because we're talking history here. I left out most of the Greek names, not because I couldn't pronounce them, Laura, but because I don't want to confuse you, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of them. But let me, just, let me tell you a story. I want to tell you a story, okay? And not history, those of you who started to check out. I'm going to tell you a story. And it begins in the year 587 B.C. Now, many of the inhabitants of the kingdom of Judah were carried off into exile in Babylon, beginning the exilic period. Solomon's temple was then destroyed. What happened to the promises of God? They went silent at that time. What happened to the temple? What happened to Solomon? What happened to David's line? Now, in 539 B.C., this man named Cyrus the Great led a Persian conquest of Babylon, and he loved the Jews. And he said, you know what? You guys have had a hard go of it. And why don't you head back to your land? We'll call it Judea. (laughs) And you can rebuild your temple and worship your God and go back there. And two groups, large groups, came back at at two different times and fought very hard with the the Jews there who never, right? Because as soon as people get freedom, what's the first thing they do? Well, they fight amongst themselves. 
right? Ireland finally throws off the yoke of England in 1922, and the first thing they do is have a civil war. So they fight with the Jews that are there, but in the end they reconcile, and this is what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are all about. And, and Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi, the prophet, are the last generation of the Old Testament. Their works we have, and they die, and that's the end of, of what we call the Old Testament period. Okay? And what you have now are people, the Jewish people, scattered all over the world. Some have returned. Some are trying to rebuild. And, and what I want to look at is what do they rebuild? What do they rebuild? This period of time shapes the Jewish people deeply. During these years, control of Palestine and the Jewish people shifted from one political power to another until the Jewish people finally rose up themselves. The Persians ruled them. The, uh, Alexander the Greek, great, I'm sorry, ruled them. Egypt ruled them. Syria ruled them. The Maccabees ruled them. And then finally Rome ruled them. Many of the dramatic differences between what it meant to be a Jew in the Old Testament and the New Testament come alive during this time. Though the Greek rule of Israel was short, the cultural influences, as I've said, continued until the 7th century AD. Now, the Greek period of rule began with Alexander the Great, and this is a fantastic story. He approaches Jerusalem. Um, the, prophets, uh, the priests and prophets there go out to him and say, Oh, you're the one, you're the one that Daniel meant in Daniel chapter 7, 6, and 11. You're the one who's going to defeat the Greeks finally. And, he's, and <laughs> Alexander, because he's Alexander the Great, says, I had a dream about this. You guys look just like those guys in my dream that told me I was going to rule the world. And so you know what he didn't do? Unlike what he had done everywhere else, destroy it. He let them, he let them stay there. Because he, a, a promise that God had made to the people of Israel was then translated over and given to, to Alexander the Great of all people, who saw in it, yes, his own greatness. And he said, I bless you, remain. And he moved on. However, he didn't last long. He died. And his 12 generals, if you can imagine the chaos, took over the massive empire that he had accumulated. Two of those um, generals become major players in Israel, in Judea. One of them is Ptolemy I. The other is Seleucus. Now, under the Ptolemies, who ruled Palestine during this time, the Hebrew people literally lost the Hebrew language. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What kind of cultural influences have to be going on in your world in order for you to literally lose your mother tongue? Okay? Imagine the cultural shifts, the, the ruling, right? What would, take, what would make us lose English and, and all start speaking Mandarin? Imagine what would have to occur for that to happen, right? If, if we were to lose English and speak German, imagine what would have to occur. And, and during this period, these two emperor, emperors... They literally lose the Hebrew language. And, and I don't think we understand quite why or quite the effect. Why is it that God comes and he writes in Greek in the New Testament? Had he said everything he had to say to us in Hebrew and Hebrew was no longer sufficient to say what he needed to say? It's an interesting thought. Now, during this time, Ptolemy II, who loved all things philosophical, commissioned 72 Jewish scholars to translate the Old Testament into Greek, and that became the primary Bible that the, the, the Jewish people used until, until the Christians started using it, and then they got rid of it. The only reason they ever went back to a Hebrew Bible is because of Christians. So now you have the Old Testament in Greek, and all of these philosophers in Alexandria who love all this stuff, where they accumulate all the knowledge of the known world at the time, were like, well, how do we reconcile this guy Moses and this person Yahweh with Plato and Aristotle? Now this, obviously, is a time of major shifts. Now there's no indication of any serious uprising by the Jews against any of these empires that ruled them until 160 BC. That's a long time. Right? We started in 587. There's no real rebellions until 160. Now, at this point, there's a man who they called the madman, Antiochus IV. And, and he ruled the Jew Jews. He hated Jewishness. He hated their religion, their clothes, their food, the look of them, the smell of them. And, and he would do things like force the priests to slaughter pigs on the altar. He is the one who said you cannot speak Hebrew in the streets anymore. Now, a high priest... At this time, this is where things get really messy. There's a high priest who says, you know what? I like this guy, and I like his program. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay him a lot of money so that I can be the high priest. And if you want to know what happened during the Middle Ages with the Pope, this is exactly what happened. People started buying the office. So one priest buys it, another guy pays more money, and he takes it over, and then he murders that guy's brother, and, and then there's a war. And, and So any Jew is like, hey, I can trace my lineage of high priestlyhood back all the way to Aaron is a liar. Because during this time, you had murders and, and families who weren't actually appointed by God to be priests who became priests. And what does this sound like? Does this sound like the people of God? Does this sound like a, a nation ruled by Aaron? Does this sound like a nation ruled by Moses? They're, they're, they're teaming up with foreign powers in order to rule in their own land? Now, in 167 B.C., there's a man named Mattathias. That's not a very Hebrew name. Mattathias Maccabees, and f- who had five sons, who was told by a general to slaughter a pig on the altar, and he, instead he slaughtered the general on the altar. <laughs> and then they took to the hills, and this is what starts the, the time of the Maccabees. The Maccabees, one of them, the, the most famous one is called the Hammer, the Hebrew Hammer, and he was. Now, all of these guys take over, and all the Jews are like, woo! But then they start slaughtering one another and murdering their own family members and swapping out who's in charge. And this goes on for quite a while. Then, after this had been going on for some time, there was a man named Antipater who was like, you know what, these guys are jerks, and I need to get a foreign power to help me overthrow them. And so he goes and gets this little tribe called the Romans. He's like, well, they're small. They could probably help me and not actually rule over me. And so for a time... The Romans actually helped him overthrow the Maccabees and become this man, Antipater. What a name is that, Antipater? He begins to rule. Now, after time, Rome, as we all know, did not remain small. So there is a man named Pompey, a very famous Roman general. He comes, and he overthrows everybody. He's like, I'm just going to get rid of everyone, slaughter everyone. And he puts a man in charge named Herod. And he is an Edomite. And so what, what, do you, what do you have in Israel? Are Israelites ruling? No, this is, this is what Samuel said would happen. You want to be like the nations. You're going to play politics like the nations. You're going to play power games like the, like the nations. And so when Jesus finally descends from heaven into this land of Judea, is he, what, what is he now? He's coming into enemy-occupied territory. This isn't Israel of the Old Testament. Israel of the Old Testament had ceased to exist a long time ago. Augustus, who became the Caesar of Rome after they had murdered the original Caesar, then there was a civil war, and then he ends up becoming uh, in charge, and they called him the glorious one. He's ruling from Rome, and you've got Herod ruling in Judea, and then God says, you know what? It's now time. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Everything I just said, if you were listening to this story, he would say, you know what? You know what is the absolute perfect thing, the perfect will of God right now? In, into this chaos would to bring the Messiah. And if you've been listening to the story, you think, no, that's the worst time to do it, right? It's the worst time. Now, how often do we look at our own lives that way? How often do we look at what's going on and we think, this, the, what do you think would be the best thing to do right now for the city of Linwood? What do you think would be the best thing to do for Washington? What would be the best thing to do for Snohomish County? What would be the best thing for the United States? How, right? What would you say? You read a story like this, and it, does it make the perfection of his will and the fullness of time clearer to you? And this is exactly what we find when Jesus actually comes. Think about it. Herod, who's not an Israelite, but he had, he had people working for him, he, he, the three wise men come into the land. They say, hey, we heard your Messiah came. And Herod's like, whoa, whoa, what? He's like, oh, let me go to the priest and find out where he would be born. How is it that they can predict exactly where the Messiah was born and yet not worship him? Because Jesus has invaded enemy territory. He has come into Egypt like Moses to throw off foreign powers. Israel is corrupt from top to bottom. They are no longer of God. They're no longer of Yahweh. They're no longer of the temple. They're no longer of the book of Moses. They, they either completely reject Hellenism or completely whore themselves out with it. And it's a confused mess. And God the Father says, you know what? Now they're ready. Now they're ready. 
And they're told, Herod and his people are told that Jesus has come, and the first thing they do is fear. They're full of fear. Why? Because they know they're stooges. They know they're false leaders. They know that they're false shepherds in Israel. And, and if they've read the Old Testament at all, what is God going to do to the false shepherds of Israel? The power over Israel is Maccabean and Herodian and Roman. Israel's religious leaders were corrupted with compromise and national politics. In their minds, religiously and politically, everything began and ended with a cleansed Judea. Salvation didn't rid one of personal sins, but external rulers of a nation state. It wasn't an internal salvation or religion, but wholly external in every conceivable way. Israel learned Hellenism, not as an evangelistic tool, but as something foreign, either to be wholly compromised with or to be fought to the death. Now, they believed that the Messiah would restore Hebraic traditions in, uh, the Hebraic traditions of Moses. Do you think Israel was anticipating the Messiah to, to give his new revelation in Greek, using Greek philosophical terms? sending his apostles to places like Mars Hill, and, and saying, oh, look, you have a statue here of a foreign god. No, they were not the last person in the world they were expecting is Jesus. They're expecting the Hebrew hammer. <laughs> They're expecting racist, right, Jew-first, Judea-first leaders who are going to now rid themselves of all this foreign corruption. But Jesus came because why? The Samaritan woman at the well needed him as much as the money changers in the temple. And, and, and that is a fascinating story as to how they ended up this way. Now, Jesus was not of Rome or Herod or Hellenism. He came with a completely different way of understanding everything and communicating everything. And he was concerned about his own nation. He tells the apostles in Matthew 10... These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? Because Israel is everywhere, and they're leaderless. So he says, first, gather my people together. Gather my people together. That's first. He's wholly concerned with his own nation, but only as a stepping stone. He says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He gathers first Israel. He cleanses first Israel so that they can go on foreign conquest. And what is he concerned about? Is he concerned right, about people's language? Is he concerned about their culture? Is he concerned primarily with what? The externals? Or is he going everywhere and speaking to everyone about what is going on in their heart? And he comes and he says, listen, the time is ripe. Israel is no longer Israel. There is no longer in Israel. I am Israel. I am here now. And every single nation, every single tribe in this world equally needs to be redeemed. And it's not about externals. First, it's about internals, the internal heart, the internal motivations, the internal religion. Now, here is what we find. Herod hears all of this, right? And Herod's response is to be filled with fear. Now, I want, I want to ask you a question. Why are the Judeans afraid? Unless they were false kings and leaders, oppressors and foreign puppets. Are you afraid? When you first heard the gospel, when you hear the gospel anew now, when you hear that the, that the king has actually come, a foreign king, does that fill you with fear? Because now you have to give up the throne of your own heart, right? What was going on when Jesus came and this whole story of the 14 generations is the same story that goes on in every human heart that receives him. Because we hear there's a different king and we think, well, what about, well, what about, well, what about? We hear there's another king, not us, and we think, well, that sounds like a dangerous idea. Right? I mean, it's, and people are, how hard is it to convince people that there is a God? They get that there is a God. They get that there is a power other than themselves. And does it fill them with fear and terror or joy and happiness? The story of the 14 generations, the story of Judea, the story of Israel and the chaos that happened within it, and the fullness of time in which Christ came 
is the story of each individual convert. Think, Jesus came into your life when? At the, exactly the wrong time or exactly the right time? Jesus shows up in a culture to transform it at exactly the right time or exactly the wrong time? If you were looking out on your family, you're looking at one another and sitting around the dinner table, sitting around having fellowship, you're sitting around, you're looking at your workplace, you're looking at all those people on the bus, all those people standing in line at Starbucks, do you think, what do you think they need right now? What is it that they need? Is the time ripe? Is the time, right? Is it, are, are people ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus? Now, I think some of us would say no. Why? What would Jesus say? What would the Father say? I hope that this isn't too obscure. But what happened when Jesus came in his first advent is what happens still. Now, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, and you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends, that is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery. Because I've met broken people, and you know what I think? Ah, that guy's not ready. You know how much spade work that guy's got to do before he's ready for this message? Ah, that guy wouldn't understand the gospel as I would explain it. I have literally met people, and I thought, I can't evangelize this guy because he's an idiot. I'm sure that none of you have ever done that. I've met people who are desperately needy, and I thought, you know what? I got to go. I don't have time for this. I got lots of other things to do. See, the struggle internally is always this. You meet some person in need, whether it's a brother, a sister, or someone outside of the household of God, and, and there in that moment, there you are, and there they are. Is that the fullness of time? Was that an accident? Is that person ready? What does that person need? Oh, that person needs to balance their checkbook. Well, that person needs to stop drinking so much. That person needs what? That person needs to, needs to, needs to, and then they would be ready. You are here listening to the secret wireless, the secret message, and what you are are saboteurs. What you are are counter-revolutionaries. Because, the, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the king came, he won, he sits at the right hand of the father right now, ruling and reigning the cosmos. He, he's, it's not like, oh, I wish his kingdom would come somehow. His kingdom is here. It's here. And what we are are saboteurs. What we are are anti-revolutionaries because there's revolution all over the place. They want to revolt against what a man and woman is. They want to revolt against who the king is. They want to revolt, right, in every conceivable way. They're full of fear. And they can't play like they don't know, just like the Judeans couldn't play like they didn't know. The problem is, is who's going to, who's going to just address the lie? No, that is not what a man is. Nope, that is a lie. Nope, that false god that you've got there, that's close, like Paul would at Mars Hill, but you've got it all wrong because God doesn't live in temples made by hands. Right? And this is what we're going to go on to see. The, when Jesus shows up, what does he keep telling his apostles, the disciples, I mean, who became apostles? He says, yeah, the, 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 it's white for harvest around here. Yeah, look, they're, they're shepherdless. And so we look around, right? We sit here in the United States. I'm sorry, you guys. And we think, you know what? This place is a shambles. This place is a shambles. Somebody's got to do a lot of work around here before these people are ready for the gospel. And I'm just going to ask you a question. Could you imagine a land more ready for the gospel than this one? See, what is going on all around you is a mystery to you. It was a mystery to Judea and Israel. It was a mystery to the disciples. It's a mystery because God is not like us. He doesn't do things the way we do them. His purposes are better than ours. He can get his hands all the way around it, his mind all the way around it. And what he's calling you to is not to understand it all. He's not calling you to get all the ducks in a row. Right? 
He's calling you in the moment, right now, to be faithful to him or not. That's it. Right? And, and look at the chaos that happens when he shows up and he says, okay, I'm here. To t-, right? You may have heard this, but the word God actually means this. Okay, you guys think that you have the kingdom of heaven. You're close, but if you do this, then you'll be in. He goes around, and he, what is he dealing with? He's dealing with all the nonsense that's in the way, that, that is confusing people, the, the things that are suppressing them, that are keeping them in bondage, keeping them in slavery, keeping them dark in their minds. And so you, right now, in your heart hearts, in your minds, right now, might need to hear this. The Lord Jesus Christ came. He won. You're free from everything that is of Satan, sin, and death. There is not some other day. There isn't some other work. There isn't some other life. This is the life that you've been given. This is the time in which you've been given to live. The people you know are the people you've been given to serve. This is the time. And when you hear that the Lord Jesus is here, you can either respond like Herod, or you can respond like the shepherds. They were told a mystery, and they didn't say, oh, wow, this is... No, they said, this is... This is crazy, but we're going to go. Right? These, this message from heaven has come to us. What we're going to do is obey it. What we're going to do is not understand it, but go and obey it. And so stop waiting for the perfect time. Stop waiting for it to fully understand everything that's going on. And if you want to know something about mysteries of the New Testament, pick up a book of philology, a book of history, a book of archaeology, Study this period. Who are these people that Jesus comes and addresses? Who is he freeing? Who is he fighting? What is going on? And stop making the faith so simplistic. It's not nearly as simplistic as you think it is. What is the culture that's seducing all of us right now that if Jesus were to come now in his advent, like Hellenism, he would say, listen, you guys are You don't understand it. Because you're either wholly corrupted by it or you completely reject it. Is there anything in our culture that might be similar? Let me just point this out. Foreign rulers of Judea were using a two-party system to control everyone. I'm just going to drop that nugget on you right there. Go forth. And if you start looking into things, what you will find is there are deep mysteries, things to be understood, but that man, in one sense, fundamentally doesn't change. The language may change, the culture may change, but the heart of man doesn't. And you're either going to go out and see that this is the fullness of time, now is the time to be faithful, or it's not. This is the moment where Christ comes in, where Christ is already here, and we recognize him, or we don't. Happy Advent. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and amen. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, for the 14 generations, for Alexander the Great and Philo of Alexandria. We thank you, Lord, that behind all of these things, you were working and moving uh, to create the perfect scenario for your son to come into the world and deliver us from Satan's sin and death. I pray that as we go from here, we would understand not only the deep mysteries of the New Testament, but that we would understand the deep mysteries of our own heart, that we would hear your message, that we would obey it, Lord, and that we would delight delight in this time and this place that you have given us to be faithful to you. Amen.